This episode is sponsored by Bevy. Bevy is a smart water cooler that offers still, sparkling, and flavored water on demand. With Bevy, your office could pay half the cost of what it costs to stock bottle water and reduce its carbon footprint by saving thousands of bottles per year. To learn more about Bevy and get a custom quote, visit bevy.co slash offline. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric, a recognized global leader in sustainability. With the SEC's climate disclosure rule, now is the time for businesses to get their data and strategy in order. To get started, visit se.com slash climate risk. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the EU looks to stamp out greenwashing, helping engineering students get smart on sustainability, what does it take to be a solutionist, and what would Ray Anderson say about his company, Interface, today? We're rolling out the carpet tiles this week on 350. It's April 7th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, wearing her Easter bonnet, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Can you hear me smiling at your uh, pun? <laughs> I uh, guess so. Uh, you, uh, you, you always sound so so joyous and mm. upbeat that it's hard to distinguish between normal and your and your audio <laughs> smile. But uh... <laughs> I must be a good actress because I'm not always cheerful. But thank you. I am uh, feeling cheerful because I'm looking out my window and seeing all the beautiful colors of spring and uh, don't, uh, don't wear an Easter bonnet, but I will be celebrating Easter with my family this weekend. So thank you for that sentiment. I appreciate it. Um, have you, have you ever gone to the Easter parade in New York? I have not. I have not. <laughs> I, I did one year. It's really, it's really quite extraordinary. Uh, I mean, you know, it just, it, all the parades in New York are, I think are for, for those who don't live in New York, uh, and it probably, you know, sort of ho-hum about it. Um, it. It was really fun. It was a number of years ago. And, and uh, people get decked out, not just the people walking down Fifth Avenue, but the um, the people in the crowd. And it, it's it's really it's really a pleasure. It's not, <laughs> I didn't know I mean, there I, was a parade, actually. I thought people were just well, parading I, I, their clothing. <laughs> but I'll be honest. There, there, there may not be any more. This was, this was a, a oh. couple decades ago or more. Uh, so okay. I, I don't re- really know. Yeah. Uh, but my other association with this, and, we, and it just happened, and I, of course, was not there with the, the cherry blossoms on <gasps> the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C., <sighs> Um, that's just was always, and, and they always last for about three days yeah. and hopefully there's not a rainstorm or something that just knocks them out early. Um, I heard they were pretty spectacular this year. I did I'm too. So sorry um, Jersey yeah. gets some pretty darn spectacular cherry blossoms too, by the way. Um, it, it, I really do enjoy it. I'm seeing it all over my town and the Magnolia. It, it's interesting though. And I was, I was coming to my husband yesterday that, um, there's a lot of yellow flowers this year and, 
uh, I realized in, in my own yard, including so daffodils, there's daffodils everywhere, which I love. Um, but there's more than usual, partly because every person in my town has given up on the deer, <laughs> which eat everything else. The deer eat all of my tulips. Uh, I, I haven't bothered planting them in years and um, daffodils they do not eat. And I noticed everyone sort of gave up at the same time. And, and my town is now a daffodil town. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. Well, um, speaking of that, before mm -hmm. we get to our usual rundown, uh, this seems an appropriate <gasps> place to talk about. <gasps> you know what I'm going to say? Do. I do. Yeah. Our newest uh, event brand. <laughs> it's called... Bloom. Why don't you go for it? Bloom. Bloom. Yeah. Yes. Where biodiversity meets the bottom line. We just uh, launched the website this week. It's going to be concurrent with Verge at the San Jose Convention Center October in, in, in late October. It's just a two-day event where Verge is, I think, a three or four-day event. And um, uh, it's going to be, you know, we, we, we did this uh, nature summit at Verge last year, which is a half day event looking at, looking at uh, again, at, at, at the risk to business, risks and opportunity to business in looking at biodiversity issues. Now it, we're turning that into a concurrent, uh, separate entry fee and all that, separate ticket uh, 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 event um, uh, at the at this convention center alongside Verge. Um, I encourage you to check it out. We'll we'll put the uh, link to that website, um, and it's still a pretty early website because we don't have a lot uh, to show for it yet. But it'll give you just a little bit of background on it. We'll link that in the show notes for this week's show episode. Um, but now, let's go to the weekend review. So Joel, I'd like to get us started. Can I do that? Uh, of course. <laughs> because cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about uh, your your interview. I'm actually really jealous. Um, you you got to talk to the CEO of Interface, uh, Laurel Hurd, who's been there, I guess, about a year now. Um, and It'll be a year yeah. next week, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah just a year. Um, but of course, the sort of headline here is Interface at fifty. So um, I. And one of these people, and we're going to get to him more in a moment, but I never got a chance to meet um, the legendary C Interface CEO, Ray Anderson, who I, I think everyone, I'm hoping everyone on this podcast, even the youngins know who he is. Um, just a legendary figure in the circular economy, in making the link between toxics and sustainability. And it took him a long time to get there, but just, I think, a sort of a storied CEO in the corporate sustainability movement. And um, I love that you got a chance to speak with Laurel sort of on the occasion of, of this, um, the company's 50th anniversary, if you will. And I'd love to hear about um, more about your conversation with her. Tell me what what inspired this, and um, yeah, let's get some highlights. Well, first of all, I've been following Interface for almost thirty years. I mean, I remember talking to uh, Paul Hawken in about nineteen ninety five, and he said, um, "You know, I'm working with this amazing 
a carpet company in Atlanta. And I'm like, okay, carpet company in Atlanta, amazing, maybe. And and then I started talking to other people I knew, like Janine Benyus or Hunter Lovins or others. And all of a sudden, they're all working with uh, part of actually something called the Dream Team that uh, that was put together to help this company go you know, on its sustainability journey. If, if you don't know the story really quickly, uh, Ray Anderson was an uh, engineer out of Georgia Tech. Uh, when he was about just quite not quite 40 years old, he'd been in the carpet business for 15 years, and he launched this company called Interface to create carpet tiles, which no American company had made. And this was at the time that uh, computers were coming in offices, and they were constantly recabling or reventilating the, the room and the space, uh, and they needed to get under the floor. And so carpet tiles enabled you to have carpeting, but be able to pick them up and, and, and re easily reconfigure some of that underfoot infrastructure. And then about 20 years later, in 1994, he read Paul Hawkins' book, The Ecology of Commerce, and had what he called this spear-in-the-chest moment where he realized that he was a sinner and plunderer of the earth and his company was a thief from future generations. Those are all quotes from him. And uh, just committed to transforming his company. Um, and he did that till the end of his life. He he passed way too early at yeah. age 77 in 2011. I, I knew Ray. I, I got spent... Uh, time with him on numerous occasions, uh, including an mm -hmm. hour-long car ride that uh, <laughs> sit in the back of, of a car with him where we were going to a conference together. And I interviewed him a number of times. And um, uh, and so I, uh, it was really interesting to take a look at this company that he created and set on this amazing journey uh, you know, way before anybody had ever knew how to spell the word circularity. He was talking about turning old used carpet back into new carpet. And, and this was, you know, in the, in the nineties, I guess. And um, so, you know, it's 50th, 50th birthday. First of all, not a lot of companies get lived to be 50 years old. Um, the average age of uh, the lifespan of companies listed in the uh, standard and poor 500 is under 20 years, like 16 years or so uh, back in the sixties, it was uh, in the fifties, it was 60 years. Um, so, this is, you know, getting to age 50 is a, is no no small thing. So, yeah, I wanted to hear, you know, how the company's doing, uh, how, you know, what what Laurel heard their CEO. She had, came from a consumer product company called um, uh, Newell Brands, which has yeah. brands like Elmer's and Rubbermaid yeah. and Sharpie pens and all that. Um, and about 30, 30 different brands. And she came over into this more B2B side. Uh and just wanted to hear what she was learning and um, and what she found when she got there in terms of the company's sustainability journey. Um, and what was interesting also was, you know, a lot of us wondered when Ray passed, again, 12 years ago, would all this stuff that he was doing and speaking about, would it endure? And or would, you know, as when companies, even just under normal leadership change, companies often switch to a different strategy or, 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 or culture even. And so how would that work at Interface? And, um, you know, uh, first of all, they're they're still moving forward uh, very aggressively on their mission to to be now to be a carbon negative of company in about 17 years. They just uh, achieved a standard for carbon neutral enterprise under uh, it's uh, uh, there's a PAS 2060 benchmark created by the British Standards Institute that they were certified against. So yeah, I mean. Um, there's a it's a really fascinating story and and what's remarkable is that story has continued now yeah. for almost 30 years yeah i actually 
the yeah, the point you just made about the CEO transitions, that is always the worry, right? Just I mean, just like at the government level, when when the uh, executive or the you know the president or whatever changes, you always wonder what's going to happen. But um, yeah, I do love that, and it actually speaks to the to the foundational um, just plain good business sense that these decisions make. You know, if it wasn't a good thing to do for business, then someone probably would have checked it. Um, I I love that it stayed. Yeah, and there's some there's some you know questions around that people uh, you know criticized uh, Ray Anderson you know for particularly when the, when the economy you know took a dive uh, multiple times as it does just cyclically <laughs> over the course of a decade or two um, and and you know Ray's business uh, interface business uh, you know t- had some tough times. And some people said, well, he took his eye off the prize by looking at uh, sustainability and not on business stuff. And I talked to Ray uh, back in um, 2004 on the 10th anniversary of his sort of spear in the chest moment and and, and asked him that. And he said, no, I mean, it saved us, actually. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be here today without that. So I want to play you a a clip, uh, just a short clip of a couple questions I asked Laurel Hurd in our interview recently uh, about Ray, um, and in terms of his his lasting impact, and 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 what he might think uh, if he were to come back and visit Interface today. Let's take a listen. How much is Ray's image kept alive, or Ray specifically as a person, and is that even important at this point, or is this all taken on a, a life of its own? It's so interesting you say that. I would say um, he's the life. He, he's the he is, you said it before, and from my perspective, he's the hero that continues to live on in the company every day. And I feel personal responsibility to do him proud. And this company feels personal responsibility to do him proud. I mean, he was such a pioneer and put so put his company on the line in a time when nobody was doing it. Um, that lives, and he, if you were in this in, in our building here, you'd see videos of him, you'd see images of him, He's everywhere here. He's in the lifeblood, and it's our it's our job to continue to do him proud. So, what would Ray say about Interface today if he magically came back for a minute or a day or whatever and had a, took a look around? What would he say? It gives me chills. Actually, um, I think he'd be damn proud. I really do, and I think he would say, "Guys, you're not you're just getting started." I, I think he'd be incredibly proud of the company that he built, his legacy, and yet wouldn't be at all satisfied. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that, Joel. I wish I could have been in, in that interview. And actually, I've been writing my list of, of people that I would really love to talk to, too. So, But for the moment, um, let's go across the uh, Atlantic. <laughs> Where you just were, just by the was. way. I uh, just yeah. came back. We didn't even talk That's about true. that. But you spent last week in London. Uh, I guess you want to yeah, just, I'll just mention, talk about what you were doing I'll there? I'll mention what I was doing there. Yeah, I, I um, was doing a couple of, uh, I had sort of a reconnaissance mission, if you will, um, as we build out our European footprint. Um, and of course, we have all these wonderful folks that have joined the Greenbiz Executive Network Europe, um, I am been strategizing about the stories that we need to be writing. So part of the reason I was over there was just to meet with um, venture capitalists, uh, startups, 
others in in uh, London. I was specifically in London uh, just to talk about the, the the big stories. You know, what should we be focusing on? If you know, as a multinational company, what would what do you think people would want to learn know out of Europe? And so we were just sort of talking about story ideas, and so I'm taking lots of notes on that. And then I was also. Um, I will mention at a conference, the Economist Impact Conference, um, checking out um, what what some of the European sustainability executives had to say. So, uh, but this particular story that I'm is by actually one of the people I met with, Tom Haworth, um, and he is a writer um, based currently based in London. He's heading off to Berlin for six months, and he wrote about the new um, European Union greenwashing. Uh, legislation that's been proposed. Uh, you know, as we know, Europe has been pretty, and, and the UK, I mean, but this is a European uh, directive. It's called the Green Claims Directive, proposed by the European Commission in late March. Um, and they're really trying to set uh, sort of common criteria against greenwashing and misleading environmental claims. Europe tends to be more, the consumers in Europe tend to be more sensitive to labels and so forth, I think, than, than the US. And I'm speaking just by gut for, here, I can't cite you any stats right now, but I think you could probably rattle some off too. But I believe that, you know, generally speaking, the Europeans tend to be more um, focused on that. So there have been quite a few uh, suits and, and legal actions brought against companies, you know, who, who, who have been accused of, of greenwashing. There's, uh, and there's a cra- crazy stat in the story, 230 sustainability labels and 100 green energy labels in use across EU markets. Like, wow. So, you know, trying to sort through all of this and get a better understanding of what makes sense, what what the average person um, is seeing and how it how it affects them is important. So, yeah, a greenwashing um, directive, We, as we know, it's a big topic here in the U.S. too, and this is sort of the European take. Yeah, it's a as they say, a good start. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's just for consumer things, and it does yes. not address B two B issues. And I think, hmm. in many in many ways, the B two B stuff is even uh, more pronounced because they're first of all bought at volume. If you're thinking of you know, of well, the carpet tiles, for example, you know, I'm not casting any aspersions whatsoever on interface, but just on any kind of carpeting or interior building product, um, you see a lot of them if you were to traverse the the exhibit exhibitors, exhibit space at, at Green Build, the annual Green Building Conference, um, you'd see so many claims and, you know, and checking those out uh, and verifying those. Uh, a lot of it is is not necessarily assuming that these claims are false. What they're doing is saying, um, they need to verify them. They need to have. They need to back it up with real data, with in, in not just data, but independently verified data, and that's going to create a, 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 a much higher bar than has currently existed. Although some companies do that, they have it certified or independently verified. But now that's going to become, or need to become, the norm. Um, and uh, and I think that's you know a, a good start as I said and and we'll see where it goes. By the way, you know this isn't unique to environmental stuff because uh, there's uh, every industry, consumer products industry, from computers to cars to cleaners uh, in cosmetics have you know claims that people that companies make that are kind of vague. There was a, a, a lawsuit, I guess, a class action lawsuit um, a few years ago. Uh, just with cleaning claims had nothing to do with green. Like they had claims like eliminates odors 
or mm-hmm. irritant free mm-hmm. or one of them was an hour of freshness you know and <laughs> Whoa, that's weird <laughs> or, um and but you know i guess you know freshness by the hour that's a new business model i suppose uh, but um you know, so so this is this is true and has been true for years, decades in advertising and marketing in general, and uh, and now, but with the with the uh, you know surge of of green claims, with as, as consumers are and particularly in Europe are are uh, looking for those and more concerned about some of these issues than perhaps American consumers. Uh, this is, uh, I think, a really important step forward. It'll be, I, I doubt we'll see this in the United States just because of the regulatory environment, but you never know. I mean, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which back in the 90s issued um, their green guides, which are guidelines that um, around green marketing claims, updated them again, I think, um, sometime about 15, 20 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago, I don't remember, is now reevaluating those and they're going to come out because there's new there's new things happening all the time with, you know, electric vehicles, perhaps, or, or new kinds of, you know, bio-based kinds of things that maybe didn't exist before. So, uh, or, or certainly the net zero and carbon free and those kinds of claims were are, are much more prevalent than they were back back then. So, yeah, uh, we need to do this and we need to um, to be clear about them. Um, but you know what? That that sort of sort of obliquely relates to uh, to the next mm. door, and I'm going to engineer our way oh, over no, there. I see where you're going. Um, yeah, you know where mm-hmm. I'm going because this is a story. Uh, uh, by Susan Fancy and Volker Sick, um, both at the University of Michigan. Uh, Volker, I know he was on a webcast that I hosted, uh, I guess, last year. Uh, really uh, interesting articulate. Uh, I don't know Ms. Fancy. Um, and uh, about why engineers need sustainability education. Um, I mean, I have some things to say about this, but maybe what do, what do you think about this what what they're talking about here and 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 where this you know how big of a thing this is uh, first of all i think it's a big thing and i want to give you one data point that i was saving the author uh-huh. of the story we were just talking about um the eu the story EU story yeah is a chemical engineer oh. <laughs> and so Good. i would and he and he uh wants to dedicate his his career though to journalism focused on uh, sustainability and why um, engineering needs to be more sustainable. And so he like so I he is a perfect example <laughs> of someone who drank the Kool Aid, if you will. And, and I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but but basically believes the same. Um, I I do love this story though. This um, it, it's it really it does fundamentally um, start with design, right? And so what you put into products, what you put into a material, how you engineer it, put it together, makes all the difference in how it its impact, you know, how much it takes to produce it, how much it emits when you're producing it, how much it affects people's health. And then in some former, like in some later life of the product, how you can take it apart and how you reuse the components. And so I love the idea that, um, that people need to understand the principles of sustainability. And I believe, you know, in particular, it seems like the, the principles of circularity, um, 
you know, toxicity and circularity. Uh, and and I love the, the work that seems to be being done um, in the Great Lakes region. And um, I don't know, what, what was your impression about this particular piece? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it, just to burnish a, a point that you made, but I want to make it explicit, is that this is about products. Um, this is not about infrastructure. This is not about... Mm. Um, uh, a, a, not even about electrical engineering or 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 necessarily chemical engineering, although they they can f fit into this. But this is really about products, and you know this is part of a continuum that goes back to you know well over thirty years. We had uh, you know life cycle analysis, design for the environment, design for disassembly, design for recyclability or recycling. Um, and all these things that have to do with waste management, uh, waste reduction, materials management, pollution prevention, and, and product life cycle. Uh, and so, you know, this isn't a new thing. But what is new is that uh, is the idea that um, this this first of all, this needs to be much more embedded into uh, uh, just the core curriculum of engineering students. This is, should not be an afterthought. Oh yeah, let's now that you learn engineering, let's learn about sustainability. No, these things need to go hand in hand. And, and also, there's there's now, um, and it's not super new, but it's it's been around. But I think it's growing. There's there's job titles called sustainability engineer, um, uh, and it's different from an environmental engineer where where uh, sustainability engineers typically focused on product design and the product life cycle. Uh, environmental engineers are, are more focused on site remediation, depletion of natural resources. You know how to apply technical knowledge to to addressing those issues. So, so sustainability uh, environmental engineers have been around for decades. Sustainability engineer that's kind of a new thing, and I think uh, you know as more and more uh, young professionals uh, in what, coming you know into the job market want to be part of something called sustainability uh you know this is uh the, the, this is a ripe spot for for engineers to come into and so yeah we need to be you know not just integrating the mechanics and the materials but also as as they write in this piece the people um you know how do you know, what's the impact on people um and and how does this address uh, the kind of problems that we're facing or will be facing, because you know, engineers typically ask, you know, you know, who, who, how should this be made, and where, and what will it cost, and 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 a bunch of other concerns about functionality. But now they need to be talking about, um, you know, what's the impact on people on the planet, and what's you know, what's the end, what's the impact of this at the end of its useful life, and will it have another life or another life after that. So I love that this is becoming part of of, of in engineering education. Um, I just hope it's not just at a, at a few schools, but this really becomes the norm. We receive a lot of new books here at GreenBiz. But if you read the website or listen to this podcast, you know that we rarely take the time to discuss, let alone review these books. Today's an exception, given the topic and the author, my good friend Solitaire Townsend, chief solutionist and co-founder at Futera, which bills itself as a global change agency. Her new book, The Solutionist, subtitled How Businesses Can Fix the Future, is as informative as it is inspiring. 
It sets out what it takes to join the new generation of entrepreneurs, CEOs, and leaders transforming business to create a more sustainable society. But beyond all that, book jacket copy is a fun read that will get your wheels turning as it did mine. But enough about me. The author is Solitaire Townsend joins me now from London. Hey, Soli. Hey, Joel. So give me a bit about what inspired this book. I've had I'm in my third decade of working with some of the most amazing people on the planet, which are the people we work with every day in sustainability, CSR, activism, entrepreneurship, intrapreneurship. And I learn a lot about what makes us tick and what makes us successful. So I wanted to write a book about us and for us. When you look around the world at the moment, there is a perma crisis and problems everywhere. Solutionists are the people who are finding the answers to them. Maybe you could call them answer activists. And as you write, there are three types of solutionists. So give us the rundown. So this was really fun, thinking about all of the solutionists that I know in all of the companies and the organizations. First, there's the architects. Now, the architects are big picture thinkers. They see all of the links with between everything, how things connect up in esoteric ways to strategy, to economics, to social issues, to politics. And they see connections that other people can't see. On the flip side, they can sometimes find it difficult to explain themselves and get other people to follow them into the wild woods where they're not afraid to go. And occasionally they can lose interest in a solution. Once they've found it, it's up to other people to get it done. The accelerators are the people people. They're the ones who pull together the amazing teams that get stuff done. They understand what talent is and what skills are needed. And they make sure that actually everybody in the project knows where they're going and what their role is. We talk about those accelerators less in sustainability than we should. We often talk about the architect, but we don't talk about the people people um, enough. And they are absolutely necessary on a team. And if you don't have one, you're going to feel it. And then there's the actioners. And that's exactly what it sounds like. The people who actually get things done. If they see a problem, they are going immediately to find a solution. You, they're not the people who you want to go to for a bit of sympathy or a chat through. They are just going to throw answers at you if you express a problem. And the actioners are the people who are in every organization actually making things happen. The flip side is if they're not attached to a really strong vision, if they don't have a really great plan, then sometimes they can keep doing things even if they're not having the effect that they need to have. So what you can see from these three groups is you need all of them. Every single one of these types are solutionists and you need them all on a team. Without the others, each one becomes much less effective. So I'm not sure which of those I am. What do you think? You are, you're an architect um, uh, accelerator because you think big thoughts, you pull out massive new ideas, but I don't think I've ever met such a people person. Okay, I'll go with that. So are solutionists born or made? In other words, can any of us become a solutionist? This was one of the things I really set out to investigate, because if there's born, there's not much point writing a book about how to become one. <laughs> Um, but when I interviewed all these people, I found many had massive childhood experiences, like Kate Brandt, um, uh, the CSO of Google, who told me a story about when she was a really little girl, seeing trees being chopped down, um, or Esgi from um, AB InBev, um, who spoke about um, her experiences in Cyprus during terrible droughts. So a lot of us came to this very young. There's also uh, uh, folks who had massive life-changing events. I talked to the CEO of Cow 
in Japan, Hasebi-san, who actually got meningitis. Um, he was already a big leader. And when he came out of six months of not being able to work, he came back to work with this burning desire to make a difference. But then most of the folks I spoke to, like the CEO of IKEA, um, Mads Nippu of Orsted, they came to sustainability by basically just weeding and finding out about the world and and realizing that this was a necessary part of their business. So we are all made solutionists, some of us young, some of us further in our careers. There's a whole chapter called Hope is a Business Plan. I love that <laughs> chapter, but what do you mean by that? When I think about sustainability, I tend not to think about the problems, but about the massive solutions and answers that are needed. Like there's so much modeling done by McKinsey and others about how much this should be worth to our economies. When I wrote Hope is a Business Plan, I went through what are the opportunities in food, in infrastructure, in digital, in storytelling, um, uh, in transport? What are the new business ideas? What are the breakthrough uh, uh, products and services in those ideas, and writing that uh, writing that chapter has left me with about five hundred businesses I want to set up at the end of it. So I really hope that anybody who's looking for what they could do on sustainability are going to find a great idea in that chapter. So you're a storyteller by nature, and I have to add a pretty gifted one. But how important is being a good storyteller to being a solutionist? For many many years. I would stand on platforms and uh, I would uh, talk about the stats and the facts of sustainability. I would show the business case. I'd have some fantastic slides about the strategy. And for the last couple of years, I've stood up and I've told stories of my childhood. I've told stories of people that I've met. When we were together at Greenpeace, I sat on a panel with you, opposite you, and I talked about how I learned to read as a child. Um, and what I found, and I thought people would laugh me off and would, would think that that was ridiculous and would just want the facts and stats. And what I've realized is that in a world where all the information is available to us at the touch of a button, where we can go and Google it or Wikipedia it, actually, being a verbal sustainability report when you stand up on a stage isn't the most compelling way to engage your audience. So becoming a storyteller is incredibly important. And in the book, I give advice on how to do that in a way that's really true to you. You talk a lot about joy, hope and inspiration and other positive traits of solutionists. It's a pretty dark time in the world. So how do you stay so positive? When I was interviewing Lily Cole, um, and, you know, she's this beautiful model actress and activist, um, and we were talking about how you stay positive. She was actually on her way to a funeral. Um, and so it was quite a difficult question to ask somebody, um, uh, how do you stay positive? But uh, she actually was really grateful for the question because uh, it, she needed that right then. And what she said to me has stayed with me ever since. In fact, I've got it on a post-it note right now above my screen as we're talking, which is what's the point of saving life on earth if you're not enjoying yours? That really hit me. In fact, it, it wasn't it not hit me in a particularly good way. It actually hit me in quite a hard way. And I, I, I actually canceled my plans that evening and I kind of sat at home and I had a little bit of a think about how every time I take rest or relaxation, I relate it back to work. A holiday is going to give me that perspective on what needs to happen next. I need to take care of my body because, you know, that helps me um, do more work. You know, if I hang out with friends and, you know, take some time out, that's going to mean that I've got, you know, better focus the next day. I'm going, actually, I should just be taking joy and rest and self-care and walk 
sets and and time off and box sets because I'm a human being and I'm allowed. And that's a permission that I want to give everybody in sustainability. And when things are dark, it's even more important to find the joy. And you're not going to find that um, uh, by reading doom scrolling through um, uh, through Twitter. You're going to find that in the smile of your child in a long walk in an ice cream um, to remind you that life's worth living. Yeah, it's true. We need to take care of ourselves and each other. Maybe the topic for another day or another book. There's so much more to talk about and lots more inspiration. The book is The Solutionist. The author is Solitaire Townsend, and it's out now. Thanks, Soli. Thank you, Joel. And that's another 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you can find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. Uh, also, check out our free weekly newsletters. We've got a bunch of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date. All week long, just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. Our address is always 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Bevy. Bevy smart water coolers offer 15 natural flavors and enhancements that you can mix and match, keeping you hydrated without compromise. And did we mention they've replaced over 300 million bottles and cans to date? To learn more about Bevy and get a custom quote, visit bevy.co slash greenbiz. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric, a recognized global leader in sustainability. With the SEC's climate disclosure rule, now is the time for businesses to get their data and strategy in order. To get started, visit se.com slash climate risk.